Our scripture reading this morning is from the 6th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in the 35th verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that come, came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. If I am, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've heard the word. From John chapter 6, beginning with verse 35. If you're visiting this morning, we have been in a study in the gospel according to John now for several months. We've come to the sixth chapter, and uh, if you have questions uh, from just reading the passage we read this morning, you should. Uh, This is one of the most profound chapters in all of scripture. You could literally go through this chapter and preach a sermon on every single verse. Now we're not doing that. Uh, But what I'm telling you is that after the message this morning, you're probably still, will still have questions. And if you do, I hope that you will call me and say, let's talk about this. Uh, I know I still have questions. Uh, And and, uh, I have uh, studied verse after verse after verse in detail of this entire chapter. But I still have questions. Uh, But I can probably help you answer a few of yours if you have some after uh, this morning's message. Before we look at God's word, And look at this episode in the life of Jesus. Let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests, a congregation of priests. And we would come this morning on this good day This July the 4th holiday, when we remember the founding of this country, when we remember how blessed we are as a nation. Father, everything comes from you. This this nation just did not happen by accident. You raise nations up. And you tear nations down. Our Father, you have blessed us as you have blessed few nations. We thank you for the freedoms that we have had. We thank you for our Constitution, an incredible document. Again, it it just didn't happen. Father, was in your good providence. We thank you that for the balance of powers that we have inside of our government. Father, we fear for our land right now. As our culture is fleeing 
not only you and your word, our culture is not only fleeing the God who has created us and made us to be who we are as a nation. Like the worldly leaders of Psalm 2, we hear our country shouting those words as they look at you. Let's break the chains that bind us, the chains of the Almighty and His Word. Let's get away from them. Oh, Father, yet have mercy on our land. Send an Elijah. Send to John the baptizer. You've sent men in the past, and we're not deserving, Father. But we pray that yet one more time you would have mercy. We pray that in our place, in our time, in our families, at Christ Presbyterian Church, we pray we will be faithful to you. Our Father, in comparison, we see the nation of China celebrating a hundred years of oppression, celebrating their persecution, celebrating their persecution and murder of hundreds of millions of people. Father, we pray that you would bless the church in China. We pray that as strong, as huge, as monolithic as the atheism and the hate in China is in the government, we pray that it will not be able to stand against your church, that your church in China will prevail and will crush the gates of hell. We pray for our brothers and sisters. Give them strength. May we, Father, gain from their strength and also stand. As we open your word now, we pray you'll teach us. We're your children, and we're here again before you this morning, and we're simply asking as your children, Father, that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach, so it will make any difference in our lives. So, Father, one more time, teach us this morning. We pray that what will happen in the next few months or the next few minutes, we pray that, Father, it will be a supernatural thing, that you will come in power and speak to your children. Tell us a story, Father. Tell us the story one more time. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Father, and for his glory. Amen. Jesus, the bread of life. Did you write the recipe or God? Maybe when you saw or heard that title, you thought, John's being shallow. Shallow. 
or cute or trivial. Oh, far from it. Far from it, people. That title is an accurate description of what was happening in this scene. Who made Jesus the bread of life? Who wrote that recipe? How did he become the bread of life? The disciples and the crowd, we've seen this in the last few weeks, wanted him to be the Messiah who would follow their directions. They wanted more bread to eat, more physical bread to eat. They wanted a king who would feed them just like Jesus fed the 5,000 the day before. And then, ultimately, they wanted him to get rid of the Roman occupation of Israel. In the last five years, and some of you that have known me for a long time, don't laugh at this, but it's true. The last five years, I've become really, really interested in cooking. Not just the manly art of grilling or barbecuing, but creating all kinds of recipes and dishes. I've really gotten into it. I'm fascinated with the culinary arts, with the different cuisines. Now, I am a novice, a nobody in the world of cuisines. But even as a nobody, I will play with a proven recipe, and I'll think, I'll add this ingredient to that recipe, and it will make it better. Now, that recipe, that specific recipe, was created by someone far beyond my knowledge and ability. But I'll try to add to the recipe still. Now, folks, that is presumptuous. Here's a recipe by a proven chef, Gordon Ramsay, the great chef from Scotland. And this novice dares to think, I can improve on Gordon Ramsay. Well, that is exactly what the disciples and the crowd were trying to do. In the passage before us, Jesus is saying to the crowd, you keep warning me to go your way. You keep wanting me to become king on your terms. To make physical bread for you. To, to get rid of the Romans. I said, you don't get who I am and what I'm here to do. Now we need to hear this. Because all of us have the proclivity to do the same with Jesus and with his salvation. We want to make our own recipe for the identity of Jesus. We want to make our own recipe for his salvation. Jesus, in the words we read this morning, took that crowd to task and in the same way takes us to task. 
What does he do? He speaks to them of the supremacy of God in salvation. That is the theme of this rest of this chapter. Everything we read this morning was about God, the supremacy of God, and his salvation, in his salvation. So that will be our theme this morning. Just write it up. We could write it back over here. The supremacy of God in salvation. It has four parts in this chapter. It really has more than that. We're just, we will only look at four. First, we see the supremacy of God in salvation as the Father sent his Son from heaven. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, he means this literally. We sometimes say about something, that was heaven sent, or that person was heaven sent. And we're talking about God's providence. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying, as the eternal son of God, I came from glory. I came from heaven. I not only came from heaven, but I am here under the command of the Father. Go back and look at the verse. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but do the will of him who sent me. I'm here under his command to do his will. Did anyone in that crowd or any of us go to heaven and say, God, we need you to send your son. Father, we need you to send your son. Did we whisper a plan in God's ear? Was the incarnation of the son of God our idea or God's idea? We forget that. Did the father say to the son, go to those wayward people and just see what you can do with them. He did not send Jesus and leave him on his own. He did not have some vague command such as, go see what you can do with them. No, the plan of the incarnation from Bethlehem to the cross and resurrection was the plan of God from the foundation of the world. Read the first chapter of Ephesians this afternoon. We're, just, we're going to look at a couple of verses in just a moment. How else? How else would Isaiah know? How else could Isaiah write in detail about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Was Isaiah whispering in the ear of God, this is what you'll do? Or was God saying to Isaiah, this is what I will do? How was it that Micah could say to Israel, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem? Was he saying that? Was it his idea? Was he telling God, oh, I know where your son will be born? 
Jesus was carrying out the will, the commands, and the plan of the Father. The supremacy of God in salvation is seen in that the Father sent his Son to do his will. Secondly, the supremacy of God in salvation is seen that the Father sent his Son as the bread of life for starving sinners. The supremacy of God, secondly, is seen in salvation as the Father sent his Son as the bread of life for starving sinners. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Father did not send a mere angel. He did not send physical manna like he did in the Old Testament. He did not send just another prophet. He sent his son. He had blessed Israel with incredible blessings over the centuries. Think about it. We just read from Genesis to Revelation. The incredible blessings that God gave Israel. But now, now he comes bringing the gift of the ages. He comes with his own son. Paul got it. This is the subject of the first chapter of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians on your scripture sheet. Look at Ephesians 1, 3. Look where Paul starts as he talks about Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He praises, when he thinks about Christ, he praises the Father. And just read on. Who has blessed us with Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Skip down to verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, look at this, riches, circle that, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now this is the Father, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. Here he comes with an incomparable gift with an incomparable wealth. It's the bread of life. Would we have dared to enter heaven with our sin, with our rebellion, and said, here's what you can do. You can send us your son. You can send your son and make him the bread of our souls, the bread of our life. And all that entails, we're going to look in a moment at all that entails. So now go back to this crowd. After Jesus had made himself known to the crowd, 
After he had fed well over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, the crowd says, okay, now we'll take over. We'll go to Jerusalem and make him king. We see the supremacy of God in salvation. As the Father sent his Son from heaven to do his will, as the Father sent his Son from heaven as the bread of life for starving sinners. But then we see the supremacy of God in salvation as the Father draws starving sinners to Christ. This is a theme through this entire passage. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you. He keeps going back to this. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by my Father. Now, don't get lost here. Stay with me. This is really important. Why did Jesus say these things right at that time? Why did he just say it? Well, we're told in verse 36, right before Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus speaks of the crowd's unbelief. Look at verse 36. Jesus said, look at verse 36. But I said, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So what was Jesus' response? They had seen him feed the 5,000. What if you had done that and you were, you were faced with this crowd? You'd be discouraged. What was Jesus' response to their shallowness? What was Jesus' response to their unbelief? Was he distraught at their unbelief? No. He said, I will trust the Father to bring starving sinners to me. I will trust the Father to bring believers to me. How the church needs to hear this. We do not convert people. John Sartell does not convert people. Billy Graham did not convert people. The church does not convert people. If we're here a thousand years at Christ Presbyterian, we'll never convert a soul. Over the centuries, time and time again, the church has tried all types of campaigns to make Christ more palpable. It happens around us all the time. The evangelical church, sound as she is, constantly, constantly tries to make Jesus more palpable to the world. If we just, if we just make him a, a bit kinder in this area, if we just don't say this from his word, the world might think more kindly of Jesus, think more kindly of us. Here Jesus, when they unbelieve, Jesus points to the supremacy of the Father and says, my Father will bring me my people. 
people. I'm not worried about it. Are you a believer this morning? Are you a Christian? I just read you your history and what a history it is. Think about it. The Father gave you to Jesus. If you say otherwise, you're saying, I don't believe this. He says, no one's ever come to me unless the Father draws him. That's my history. It's your history. Look at Matthew 16, 15 through 17. Remember when Jesus said, ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, what happened? Look at Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, way to go, Peter. You're the most brilliant disciple I have. You figured it out. You've got it. He didn't do that. He looked at Peter and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I remember a time in my life, in fact, it lasted for several years, when I fought against this notion. I wanted credit for my salvation. I wanted to be the one who chose Jesus. I wanted to be the one who chose Jesus in my own wisdom, in my own strength, by my own work. I fought against God's grace. I fought against Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that said, for by grace you have been saved. You know what grace is? It's an undeserved gift. You don't deserve it. Not only you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of work so that no one can boast. People, what's that saying? Jesus, the bread of life, is God's recipe, not ours. Salvation through grace alone is God's recipe, not ours. Salvation through Christ alone is God's recipe, not ours. When Jesus fed them, miraculously fed them, he did what they had never, ever, ever seen. Fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We're going to make you king, Jesus. We have a plan for you. You will provide for the nation and throw the Romans out. They were not saying what they should have. They were not saying, you're the son of man and son of God from glory. What would you have us do? They did not care that the Lord God Almighty had a different plan from the foundation of the world. And his plan was not a throne in Jerusalem. His plan was a cross at Calvary. Far, far, far from their plan. Remember, just a, we, we saw this. If you weren't here, go back and look. Right after Jesus fed the 5,000, he went striding across those stormy waves to the disciples in a boat. Remember why he did that? Their lives were not in danger. Not at that point. It was just hard going. No, this was about Jesus. He was saying, do you not know who I am? You want to make me some king in Jerusalem? I'm already king. King of a universe. 
He came striding across those waves. Do you not know who I am? I am the Lord of the storm. I'm the Lord of the sea. And they temporarily, we saw this, they temporarily got the message. When he got in the boat, Matthew tells us that they fell down and worshipped him. Another human being standing right before them, and they worshipped him as God. They got it. That's what the five loaves and two fish, that's the message they should have gotten there. Well, it's the next day. The crowd didn't see that, just the twelve. But Jesus responds in the same way to the crowd that he did the disciples. He asked them a question. Perhaps you were like I was when I used to read this. Verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? I would love to have been there to see that. Are you really offended by this? Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What's he saying? The disciples found these words hard. They wanted to retain their dignity. They wanted salvation on their own terms. wanted Jesus on their own terms. This time, Jesus did not go walking through a storm on the water. He didn't go down to the seashore and say, hey, I got something I want to show you. You didn't see it. The disciples, my 12 did. But I want to show it to you and go walking across the Sea of Galilee. He didn't do that. But he asked him a question. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending into glory? What would you say? Would you say, we're going to take him to Jerusalem and make him king? You would not be telling. If you saw that, you wouldn't be telling me what I should do. You would not be telling me how you will be saved. The Apostle John actually did see Jesus in glory. Remember, read this afternoon, the first chapter of Revelation. John hears a voice behind him. A loud, roaring voice. And he turns. And there is Jesus. And what did John do? Did John say, Jesus! It's great to see you again. Did he run around? No. John, the sight was so miraculous. John fell on his face, it says, as if he were dead. There's a wondrous beauty about this, people. There's a wondrous beauty. That the Father gives you to Jesus. In the classic old school wedding ceremony, the Father brings the bride down the aisle. The minister says to the people congregated there, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? The father says, I do. 
people is a poor illustration. But it's the Father in heaven that gives the bride to Jesus. It's the Father in heaven that gives you, that gives me to Jesus. That's not a hard saying. That's not a hard saying at all. It's so beautiful and so true. How did we become Jesus' own? The Father gave us to him. It's arrogant to think any other way. The supremacy of God and salvation is seen in the Father sent his Son from heaven. The supremacy of God and salvation is seen the Father sent his Son as the bread of life for starving sinners. The supremacy of God and salvation is seen in the Father draws these starving sinners to Christ. And finally, the supremacy of God and salvation is seen in the necessity of Jesus' work in salvation. The necessity of Jesus' work in salvation. Look at John chapter 6 in verses 50 through 56. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in us, in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. How does Jesus become the living bread? He's the living bread by virtue of his person and his work. Now hang on, we're almost at the end. And this is, this. you need to hear this, you need to see it. He becomes a living bread by who he is and what he did. Some have looked at this whole chapter of six John of John six, and they said, as the bread of heaven, it's not talking about the Eucharist. He's not talking about the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ that we partake of when we come to the Lord's table. We'll do that next Sunday. That they said he's not talking about that. He's talking about feeding on God and his word, feeding on Jesus and his word, feeding on the Christ of the incarnation, feeding on the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, feeding on the resurrection. As we open God's word, we know this. We could say every time we open the Bible, I'm feeding on Christ. I'm feeding on God and on his word. There are some that say he's only doing that. It's what we're doing right now. Hopefully, in this message, we're feeding on Christ. Now, some say that's what this is about. Others say, no, 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 no. He's referring to the table. He's referring to his body being broken in the shedding of blood. Well, folks, it's not an either or question. It's a both and. It's both. He's speaking of both. He's the living bread in his person, in his truth, and in his work. 
He's also the living bread by becoming broken by the shedding of blood. What did we just read? My blood is true drink. Folks, without the atoning cross, without the ransom being paid, without Jesus taking our sins, we could not stand innocent in God's courtroom. We must come by way of the cross. The necessity of the work of Christ in salvation. They're inextricably entwined. When the Father brings us to Christ, He's not taking a detour around the cross. He's taking us to the cross. All through Scripture, we see people shaking their heads at at this salvation. They shook their heads here. We don't believe it. Paul wrote about it, how they shook their heads with him. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24. God, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Think about this. If I were to go and I was on CNN or on MSNBC or ABC, CBS, any of those, or any major city or go to any university, and I speak this morning, the world's going to laugh. They're going to scoff. It's foolishness. A stumbling block. But to those who are called, it's the power of God. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. There were three groups of people in that crowd. There were those that were in the crowd that were fascinated by Jesus. They they came to see one more miracle. They came to see what, what he was all about. And then there was a large group of people, hundreds, we're told, that had attached themselves. They were kind of following Jesus wherever he went. They sort of attached themselves to him. And then you had this close circle of 12. This this passage in verse 66 says that after hearing this, that larger crowd of disciples walked away. Walked away. They had just heard one of the greatest sermons preached in the history of the world. They had heard, you must give up writing your recipe. It's not yours to write. They had seen Jesus do this. They had seen Jesus bring 120 gallons to a wedding feast. They had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They walked away. This moment full of pathos. 
Jesus turns to the twelve, and the twelve know these people are walking away. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered, Where would we go? Who brings 120 gallons to a wedding feast? Who feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Who walks across the waves in a storm? Who else? Jesus. Who else has the words of eternal life? You know what he was saying when he said that? No one else has ever been what you are. No one else has ever done what you're doing. You're the only recipe. There's not another. Our hymn is an affirmation of what we've just heard. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died.